Bookstuck with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Don't forget to check our website for all the latest commentary and analysis and to subscribe to Bookstack on your podcast app. Coming up on the show today, Daniel Treesman, Professor of Political Science at UCLA and author with Sergei Goriev of the new book Spin Dictators, The Changing Face of Tyranny in the 21st Century. Uh, Daniel, welcome to Bookstack. Thank you. Glad to be here. So congratulations uh, on the new book. The rise of spin dictatorship uh, has been one of the most striking phenomena of the past half century, you say. Uh, so what exactly is it? Right. Well, uh, it's the new uh, type of authoritarian regime that we see increasingly often. The most common type of authoritarian leader today is what we call a spin dictator. And uh, it contrasts with the typical dictator of the 20th century, uh, whom we refer to as a fear dictator. So fear dictators, you can think of people like Stalin or Hitler or, or Mao, uh, they use fear to control the population. So the state uh, often killed large numbers of, of dissidents and imprisoned hundreds, thousands, sometimes uh, tens of thousands of political prisoners. Uh, fear dictators imposed complete control over the media, comprehensive censorship, uh, and they used heavy-handed propaganda, often, often combined with an official ideology. They imposed an official ideology that everybody had to subscribe to. And very often they closed the state's borders against information flows and, uh, and limited travel. Um, even, not all of them had an official ideology, but even those that didn't, or even those that had more open borders, uh, thinking of people like Pinochet, or in Africa, Mobutu, or Idi Amin, they tended to be very violently repressive as well. Uh, so that was sort of the image of the 20th century dictator. Uh, but by contrast, spin dictators, uh, who've become increasingly prevalent uh, in the last uh, three or so decades, uh, they have a different approach. They, they control people by manipulating their beliefs rather than by terrorizing them. So uh, you could think of people like uh, Viktor Orban in Hungary, the late Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, uh, Putin in his early years, uh, or uh, Nazarbayev in Kazakhstan, for instance. And this type of uh, dictator <clears throat> excuse me, uses, uses relatively little violent repression. And uh, when they do uh, lock people up or, or even kill people, they uh, try to camouflage uh, their violence as uh, anti-terrorism or, or something non-political. They arrest people for ostensibly non-political offenses. They pretend to be democratic and they control or, or co-opt the media uh, often in quite subtle ways, uh, with the goal of boosting their image as competent, effective uh, leaders. And uh, pretending to be democratic, they hold elections, but they manipulate them and control them behind the scenes to make sure that they win. At the same time, they allow a fringe opposition media, so long as its, uh, its audience is small. Uh, and so uh, while allowing it, they harass the journalists, they try to discredit the independent media um, by, 
they don't completely ban it, as in the old uh, fear dictatorships. And these, these new, uh, new style dictators, uh, they're much more open to the outside world. Uh, and uh, in fact, they use uh, international economic relations and membership in international institutions uh, to get leverage over the West, to get leverage over the uh, democracies of the world uh, and to influence them. So we see it as a, as a quite different uh, model of dictatorship that has uh, become really the dominant model uh, as the world has become more modernized and, and globalized. Uh, these sorts of techniques have become just much, much more effective and less economically damaging to a country uh, than the old uh, style of totalistic, uh, overtly repressive uh, dictatorship that uh, sadly we saw so much of in the 20th century. And one of the really interesting points that you make in the book is that there, there is a, a strong element uh, of uh, popular um, buy-in to this these kind of regimes. One of the uh, fascinating insights I thought you had was that uh, you point you point out that you, for example, you can publish a book uh, in Russia uh, calling Vladimir Putin a dictator. That's very different to Stalin's Russia or Stalin's Soviet Union. But the point is that no one really wants to read the book. Yes, uh, a key aspect of this model. Uh, is that uh, the leader tries to be very popular. And in all these cases, I mean, the model only works if he succeeds. Uh, so uh, the real defense against the opposition uh, is not putting them in jail and keeping them from talking, keeping them from communicating. The real defense is to solidify your own base and convince the general public that you're doing a good job so they won't be susceptible or even interested in uh, claims by uh, opponents of the regime. So yes, in, in Russia, uh, I mean, everything's changing uh, quite drastically and, and radically now that we're in this war with Ukraine. But uh, for most of the Putin era, uh, it was not difficult at all to publish uh, things uh, in small circulation. Uh, that accused the regime of, of terrible things. Um, but uh, as we say in the book, uh, not many people wanted to read that. Not many people wanted to believe those things. And uh, as a result, it didn't constitute any real threat to the regime. And one of the points that you make that the historical roots of this lie with someone like uh, Lee Kuan Yew in Singapore. You have a wonderful quote from him uh, saying, "You can call me whatever you like, uh, but I but do I need to be a dictator when I can win elections hands down?" And one of the points that comes across really strongly in your book that winning hands down has become, I think you use the phrase, one of the calling cards of the modern dictator. That's right. Uh, the spin dictator wins elections. I mean, it's, it's also true that the old fear dictators of the 20th century often held elections and they would win them with uh, usually 95 to 99 or 99.99% of the vote. So elections themselves are not completely new, but uh, holding elections that look on the face of it reasonably competitive uh, is a key aspect of uh, the new model. And of course, that's part of convincing the general public that in fact, they're living in a democratic system with a very effective leader. 
So uh, yes, Lee, Lee Kuan Yew was a great uh, icon uh, for many of the leaders uh, who we study in the book. Uh, he, in Singapore, put a, a strong priority on order and top-down decision-making, but he was sophisticated about it. Uh, he created a system in which elections were held, uh, but his party almost, well, not almost, his party always uh, won with huge majorities of seats in the parliament, so 89% uh, of the seats or more. Um, and uh, he invented uh, a number of the techniques that, uh, uh, that the leaders that we, we study in this book uh, went on to use, uh, techniques to disempower potential opposition. But it's really striking how many leaders in less than democratic countries uh, looked up to Lee Kuan Yew and continue to, to look up to him as this great example. Uh, Putin in Russia and Nazarbayev in Kazakhstan both gave Lee Kuan Yew medals. Uh, Nazarbayev was very fond of talking about Lee Kuan Yew. He visited, uh, discussed politics with him. Um, and uh, Singapore really has, has been this great example for other uh, regimes to follow. So one, one neat detail uh, that we mentioned in the book is that uh, in the early 2000s, Singapore, uh, in order to demonstrate that it was, uh, in, in the government's own view, uh, open to free speech, uh, was that uh, it created uh, a replica of Hyde Park Corner, the Speaker's Corner, in a park in uh, in Singapore, uh, where people could go to to give speeches to whoever happened to come and listen, uh, and they were not subject uh, to any obvious kind of censorship. Um, well, shortly after that, uh, two Hyde Park corners uh, were created in Moscow into Moscow parks by the Russian authorities. So we see the example and the kind of innovation. Uh, in political management, uh, the innovations that began in Singapore are often appearing uh, in other parts of the world in these other regimes. And then that's definitely one of the the fascinating elements uh, of these uh, new spin dictatorships that uh, you you mentioned the early 2000s there something definitely seems to change around the the beginning of the 21st century you show how historically authoritarian leaders tended to use utilize a party system the secret police to project and brutally implement fear but uh, but then as as you point out come the beginning of this century uh, you have these uh, new authoritarian leaders uh, rocking up at places like Davos in their pinstripe suits to schmooze with venture capitalists. So, so what what happened there? Yeah, I mean, one one way we can really trace uh, this change is through changing levels of violence, changing levels of violent repression. And one thing we did in our research before writing the book uh, was to collect new data uh, on the number of political prisoners that uh, different uh, authoritarian leaders were, were holding and the number of state political killings that were occurring under the different leaders. Uh, that is all, all killings of nonviolent individuals by state agents for political reasons. That's how we defined that. It includes assassinations, executions of dissidents, 
indiscriminate killings of protesters and other unarmed civilians. So we looked through uh, all sorts of different sources, reports of human rights organizations, international bodies, uh, works by journalists, historians, and so on. Uh, with almost a thousand sources in all. And, and we came up with the best estimates we could of the number of state political killings under each authoritarian leader and uh, the number of political prisoners uh, that they held uh, at, in the most repressive year. I should say, of course, those data are inevitably going to be imperfect, uh, but we think they're useful for distinguishing uh, large differences between leaders, you know, between uh, people who maybe are, were killing uh, thousands each year uh, compared to those killing hundreds or killing uh, less than 10. So we don't make fine-grained distinctions, but uh, we do think they're useful for, for seeing major trends. And what we found was that if we look at the uh, authoritarian leaders who came to power in the 1980s, uh, almost two-thirds of them uh, had more than 10 political killings a year, 10 state political killings a year. Uh, if we look at the cohort that came to power in the 2000s, uh, only 28% had more than 10 state political killings a year. So down from about two thirds to uh, less than one third. Uh, and we also saw a similar drop in the, in, in the percentage of authoritarian leaders uh, that were holding large numbers of political prisoners. So in the 1970s cohort of dictators, uh, almost 60% had more than a thousand political prisoners in their most repressive year. Uh, in the 2000s cohort, only 16% uh, had that many political prisoners. So we see this, this really pretty clear trend towards uh, managing with much less overt repression uh, in subsequent, in, in, in recent cohorts of authoritarian leaders, but still they managed to consolidate control, to monopolize power, to eliminate checks and balances, uh, in some ways just as effectively as the old, more violent dictators. And so, you know, this obviously raises a question, why is this happening, right? So why did things start changing? We would say really from the 1980s uh, on, uh, why do we see this? And, and there are even some hints of it before the 1980s. Uh, we, in the book, we make an argument that this has to do with uh, really the way the world has changed in these decades in, in two key respects. Modernization within countries uh, and globalization uh, among countries, the integration of countries. Uh, so uh, these have really changed the nature of the societies that dictators have to uh, have to manage in a way which makes the old fear-based techniques uh, much less effective, uh, much more economically costly. If, if you're moving to a knowledge economy, uh, an economy based on, well, which requires innovation and independent thinking, uh, then uh, regimenting society, imposing an official ideology uh, banning, you know, independent free speech and, and free circulation of ideas is really costly. It makes it very, very difficult uh, to, to have a modern economy. And so uh, this process of this worldwide process of modernization and globalization, we think, uh, prompted this 
search for new techniques uh, that would be more compatible uh, with a more open world. And a, a lot of the the techniques you show are actually about generating the kind of popular consent that we were talking about before. That I mean, you show how, for example, um, very often regimes will try to slip false information or a particular way of seeing the world uh, into things like uh, opinion polls, for example, or information that's being distributed uh, among the citizenry. Uh, you can change attitudes, for example, about immigrants and whether they are, quote, uh, undermining traditional values and taking away work opportunities from uh, the citizens of a country. You even uh, give one example in Latin America uh, of, a, of a dictator who uses a, a popular television show to, uh, to, to convey these kind of ideas. So that there's a kind of a subtlety uh, that's, got, that's involved here in generating popular support, isn't there? Right, yeah. It's, it's very different from, uh, you know, comprehensive censorship where you would put a censor in every newspaper uh, and you would uh, simply uh, avoid any mention of uh, prescribed topics or ideas. Uh, the idea is you, you imitate democracy. So that means you pretend that you have an open media, uh, free media, uh, but you manipulate the information that goes through that media uh, in often subtle ways. You uh, so many of these uh, leaders co-opt the media by having friends uh, buy the private uh, TV stations, uh, by providing uh, large amounts of money for state advertising uh, to loyal media, uh, by reaching deals with the editors, this sort of thing, so that it's not immediately evident that the people that the media has been uh, controlled, uh, but you get the same outcome. Um, so, and also the the uh, manipulation has to be much more subtle than in the age of official ideologies. Uh, they shape the messages, uh, and one one thing that various uh, spin dictators like Hugo Chavez uh, did very effectively was to flood the public media space uh, with information that could distract, uh, in part from unwelcome uh, news that people might try to, uh, to to slip in. So he would hold this these uh, uh, regular TV shows, which would run up to eight hours, uh, where he would simply lecture or he'd be pictured somewhere out in the community talking to people, um, uh, providing a view of the world, obviously, from his uh, self-interested, distorted perspective. Uh, but uh, uh, basically uh, occupying the media space so that all the journalists had to had to watch this uh, these long shows to see if he would uh, actually include some some newsworthy uh, announcement in there and often he would fire members of the government during the show or make some new announcement of some big big program um, so yes you, you get the sense of uh, a, a very uh, conscious, sophisticated uh, model of getting your side of the story out there, of discrediting other versions uh, of reality, uh, and uh, in that way, maintaining uh, your support in your base, which basically uh, for these dictators is, is the general public, the less highly educated, 
less sophisticated public uh, that is usually quite ready uh, to believe uh, a message that comes out of official media so long as it's consistent and it makes them feel good about themselves, about their country. Although it is it is one of the elements uh, that you kind of point up at the beginning of the book, actually, that uh, a lot of the states that we're talking about do have a kind of a strong um, economic uh, middle class, quite wealthy, uh, well-educated, not the kind of traditional uh, breeding ground, if you like, uh, for uh, a, a dictatorship or a, an anti-democratic regime. Yes, and we think that spin dictatorship is actually an adaptation to modernization. So in middle-income countries, uh, it's a way to prevent or, or to hold off the pressures that will ultimately push towards genuine democracy. Um, so in undeveloped countries where you know 80% of the population works in agriculture, lives in isolated villages, uh, it's quite possible and, and, and in fact not too difficult to maintain control through terror, through fear. Uh, the, the, the economy is not that sophisticated, the, the jobs are, are kind of straightforward. Even in early industrialization, uh, you can mobilize vast human resources through fear, as Stalin did, for instance. Um, but uh, that gets less effective when the economy develops when you have a larger information economy where people move from industry into services uh, and when more and more people are highly educated. Uh, so a bigger part of the population is really hard to fool. Um, and uh, not only is uh, this highly educated, more sophisticated part of, the, part of the population resistant to the propaganda, uh, it becomes skilled in uh, countering the official message coming from the regime and uh, setting up alternative media and trying to undermine the dictator's uh, propaganda. So at that stage, uh, a different strategy becomes uh, more effective than the old fear strategy. And, and that strategy, is, as we uh, understand it and try to describe it in the book, uh, is, is one that either co-opts the more modern part of society uh, if the dictator has enough money to do that. So in places like Russia or Kazakhstan, uh, you see some of the smartest, uh, best educated uh, young people going into uh, the state media and producing these uh, very high production value, uh, quote, documentaries and, and news programming uh, that really does the work for the, for the uh, authoritarian regime of presenting itself in a positive light to the population. So co-optation uh, is, is the preferred strategy if the regime has the resources and it can make that work. Um, but if it turns to censorship, it's going to be this more subtle kind of censorship uh, through uh, uh, special relationships with the uh, editors and the owners of the private media and uh, manipulating the messages going out through the uh, through the state media and and the uh, leadership's own uh, media assets. 
You ask at the at the end of the book whether this uh, striking phenomena of of spin dictatorships can actually last. I, I wonder. I mean, as you look at the the events of recent weeks uh, in Ukraine, do you, do you feel that that maybe that experience suggests the limitations of the effectiveness of spin dictatorships? Absolutely. I mean, it's 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 a hard thing to pull off, uh, especially if if. Uh, Countries continue to modernize, or they face severe economic shocks. Uh, so it's not surprising that uh, eventually uh, many of these spin dictators uh, fail. Uh, and in those cases, uh, when society simply becomes too modern uh, to manipulate in this way, or uh, the economy faces serious uh, serious shocks, uh, then Sophisticated manipulation no longer works, and uh, we see uh, regimes backsliding to uh, more overt repression. We've seen that happen in several countries in, in recent years. So, of course, Putin in Russia is, is the latest case, and we really see a, a retreat from spin to fear dictatorship since uh, about uh, 2018. Um, but before that, there was Venezuela, where uh, Chavez, who'd been a, a kind of exemplary spin dictator, uh, dies and uh, power is uh, taken over by uh, Nicolas Maduro, who really switches to a strategy of fear, of, of, of uh, using violent repression. Um, and we also see something similar in Turkey under Erdogan. So there's Erdogan one, uh, who is this kind of uh, pro-European, modern, uh, sophisticated politician, and then this Erdogan too, after the attempted coup in 2016, uh, who puts tens of thousands of, of political prisoners in jail. Now, the problem with that is usually it results in uh, destroying the economy, or at least serious problems for the economy. So the economy in Russia has not been doing well now for years. Uh, the economy in Venezuela under Maduro collapsed. Uh, and the economy in, in uh, Turkey under Erdogan uh, since his move to, to more old-fashioned uh, tactics has deteriorated. It's the growth rates have gone down from uh, around 5% to an average of about 2% since, uh, since 2016. So it's a last resort for these spin dictators in modernized uh, societies uh, to go back to overt repression uh, it has serious consequences usually for the economy, but uh, when spin no longer is viable, uh, they don't have many good alternatives. So we, it's always a, a, a question how long this can last in a particular place. Uh, Lee Kuan Yew actually has some interesting uh, comments in, his, in one of his, uh, his autobiographies uh, and in interviews, he, he made similar comments wondering about how long the particular model that he created in Singapore could last, given the uh, modernization of the economy. And Singapore is really the only example uh, of a place that's, that's managed to, to you know, sustain this model uh, over the course of decades, uh, despite uh, continuing modernization of society. I mean, we, so, it's it's definitely a difficult thing to to sustain 
and uh, there's been backsliding, but we still do see uh, a significant number of these cases. And there are also other uh, democracies that seem to be approaching spin dictatorship, as for instance, in uh, Serbia, under Alexander Vucic. So, so, so in some ways, the uh, the the recent events in Ukraine are not are not so much uh, Vladimir Putin undermining his own model. Um, it's just simply made explicit what you would argue has been implicit uh, in the kind of uh, the uh, the almost inevitable fragmentation of that um, uh, model since I think uh, 2018 was the the date that you gave there. Right. We see a process that started uh, around then um, and uh, which the aggression against Ukraine, the invasion of Ukraine fits into. Um, we wouldn't say that the uh, choice of domestic strategy, the uh, handing over more direct control to uh, security service uh, officials uh, over domestic politics and policing of protest, we wouldn't say that that necessarily caused uh, Putin's uh, invasion of Ukraine, um, but it's consistent with it. And we see over time, because of, we would argue, continuing modernization within Russia, despite Putin's attempts to hold it back after he came back to the Kremlin in 2012, we see because of those pressures, uh, the Kremlin finding it just much more difficult to deal with the the waves of protests that break out in 2017, and then in particular 20, 2019, uh, and the growth of Alexei Navalny as a as a phenomenon, which is really, you know, uh, a, a sign and a symptom of this uh, of this modernization, uh, this growth in sophistication of the opposition part of of Russian society that makes it more and more difficult. Uh, for the Kremlin to control things uh, through just spin. And of course, we see uh, you know, much tougher uh, economic conditions uh, since 2012, but especially since the invasion of Crimea in 2014. Uh, so it's not that this was inevitable, and it's not that the choice of spin dictatorship led to Ukraine. In fact, that's a bit surprising, because on average, spin dictators are, are less bellicose than fear dictators. Uh, they have fewer uh, military conflicts and, and wars on average, uh, even in democracies. Uh, because if the spin model is working, uh, you don't need uh, and, and you uh, face serious dangers uh, in going to war against neighbors. It's really that as Putin changed from a spin dictator to a fear dictator, uh, there was less and less constraint on him, uh, less and less domestic political reason not to, uh, I think, think in, in, in more kind of strange, grandiose terms about a historical legacy that could be achieved through military force. Uh, so we see that happening. And, and and I wonder what implications you think that has for uh, the Russian influence, but but more broadly, kind of these spin dictators' influence uh, overseas. That I mean, when we think about particularly about Russian influence in foreign media, the these uh, millions of bots that are, are producing um, false news, uh, fake news everywhere, uh, the attempt to influence uh, elections and politics in 
uh, in Western democracies and so on. Do you, do you think that uh, that recent events are going to ramp that kind of thing up, or do you think that this offers an opportunity uh, for the West to get the, to get that under control? Well, I think it's crucial that the West uh, does more to get that under control. I mean, a, a lot of what spin dictators do is to try to uh, sort of pass under the radar uh, in their international influence operations. So uh, they try to use the techniques that they use at home for manipulating opinion, to manipulate opinion abroad. And they, again, imitate democracy uh, abroad, just as they imitate it at home, uh, participating in, in uh, liberal institutions of the international order, like uh, in, in the case of uh, Hungary, uh, NATO, the EU, uh, but in the case of somewhere like Russia, uh, the OSCE uh, and uh, Interpol, for instance, and they, they use these international institutions uh, to uh, to strengthen their own regimes, to fight their enemies. Uh, for instance, uh, uh, Russia using Interpol to, to put out uh, international arrest uh, requests on uh, dissidents who've gone abroad. So we need to uh, we need to face up to that. Uh, we shouldn't think that integration with these authoritarian countries, although we do think that's the right long-term strategy, we don't. We think that the West needs to be very conscious uh, of how integration can be used against it, uh, and we need to take steps like monitoring relations with authoritarian regimes better, uh, or financial monitoring, counterintelligence, better cybersecurity. We also think as we remain, as the West remains, uh, deeply integrated into uh, a world which contains significant authoritarian states. I mean, there's no way really to decouple from uh, a state like China, given the extent of economic uh, ties and just the global nature of uh, things like, uh, well, pandemics, for instance, uh, technological change, um, environmental hazards. We think integration is is unavoidable but uh as i was saying we need to monitor better we need to build resilience into our supply chains and we need to stop enabling these dictators uh, all western countries have industries of lobbyists lawyers bankers and you know even to some extent the big tech firms uh, that provide services to authoritarian leaders and help them to influence uh, international politics so there's a lot more that we need to do. And most important, of course, uh, reforming and reinvigorating uh, our own democratic institutions at home, both, both for our own sake and to set a better example. Uh, we need to do all this uh, because the threats we face from spin dictators and also to some extent uh, remaining fear dictators are more insidious than, than we've realized. Uh, it's easy to rally round, well, I shouldn't say it's easy, but when you face an obvious threat to the West, like the aggression in Ukraine, uh, that focuses the mind and it leads to really quite an amazing level of unity in, in the West, in Europe and the US uh, to fight back. But there are many other threats uh, that don't get as much attention and we need to address them more systematically, given this changing nature of 
uh, authoritarianism around the world and the changing set of tools that dictatorships are using. So the book is Spin Dictators, The Changing Face of Tyranny in the 21st Century. It's written by my guests, Daniel Treesman and Sergei Goriev, and is published by Princeton University Press. Uh, but for now, Daniel, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thanks so much. My pleasure. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Demir Marusek. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. <laughs>